it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too it's a thing and now the truth is out there i can tell you about my favorite place to have fun chumba casino they have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week you can play for free anytime anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses so join me in the fun sign up now at chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus it's time for today's lucky land horoscope with victoria cash Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. podcast of your SB Nation New York Met site, Amazing Avenue. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro, and with me this week is Chris McShane. Chris, we are recording this show on the evening of day one of the MLB Rule 4 draft, or first year player draft, if you prefer. Uh, the podcast will probably not go long enough to give you live commentary on the Mets pick at number 53, but in the general draft spirit, if you could draft one writer to write for Amazing Avenue, who would it be? I think I'm going Ribbon. <laughs> okay, there's a few different angles you could go from there, but I'm curious to hear your justification for that. Uh, just just for the... Just for the lulls? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. He works hard. He works very hard. He writes about a bunch of things. Uh, he, he writes well. Doesn't I imagine he doesn't require much editing. Um... Yeah, all those things. I feel like if anything could get James writing more regularly again, it, it would be having Ruben in, in the fold. It's it's funny you say that because my choice 
for a writer I would draft right for Amazing Avenue is James Canengeiser. <laughs> <laughs> He's done a couple of recaps this year. I know. I really missed this week in uh, SNY, though. I feel like he would have some interesting things to say about the Steve Gelbs era. I know. I know. I've I've tried. I occasionally fire off an email with tips to the uh, This Week in SNY mm-hmm. at Gmail. Sadly, but, they remain unresponded to, I assume. Uh, yes. And I, it, I've talked to him about it once or twice, and yeah, it's just, it's a dream. There was a draft in the editor oh. uh, a few weeks back. It was a 2014 review, and then it just slowly went down, 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 and, and faded into the abyss. I don't know. I don't mean to get your hopes up, readers, but I'm just sharing that my hopes were, mine were, so, or, you know. This is episode 122, Amazing Avenue Audio. We will not really be talking about the draft, for one, because we did it last week. Uh, for two, because we probably won't be done by the time the draft is over, or at least day one. And for three, uh, a lot has happened in Metsland over the last week. They just wrapped a three and four road trip and are still somehow in, in first place in the National League East. And, and really, I'm at the point where People are like happy about a three and four road trip against two sub five hundred teams, and just keep banging that NL East drum, NL East first place drum for a team that's first place. Uh, that's four games over five hundred, I should say. It's really kind of like arguing with like an Aresian evangelist at this point. Um, you just can't, you know, you can't win. It's like, did you know the Mets are in first place? Well, they're in first place, and they will always be in first place. There's no way of getting around it. They probably won't always be in first place. They might. They might. It's possible. I really... I just have this feeling, you know, the Nationals are going to reel off 9 of 10 again, and that's going to be it. <laughs> they did it once, well, only twice, to get back to even. They're just going to do it again, and the Mets are going to go 500 against the... What are they got? The Giants and the Rockies this week? Is that right? Uh, yeah, that sounds Giants, right. Rockies, Toronto. They'll go, like, 5 and... Oh, it's 8 games. They'll go like four and four for those eight games, and the Nationals will go eight and one over the next nine. And we're just like, oh, that was nice when the Mets were in first place. That will never happen again. But apparently, I'm a bit of a pessimist. I'll 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 take the optimist side here. But anyway, we'll talk, we'll talk about some of the reasons the Mets might not be in first place soon. Like uh, I don't know who's <laughs> on third for starters. I do know who's on third actually, and it's Eric Campbell. Um, yes. We'll see if we can come up with some alternatives to that over the next hour or so. Uh, we'll talk about the six-man rotation. Actually, we won't talk about the six-man rotation. We'll talk about the six-man rotation, it seems like, for a month, but there's no longer a six-man rotation. What it really was was a Dylan G spot start. That was the thing that happened. So we'll talk about the five-man rotation. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about Bobby Parnell, Dilson Herrera, and Travis Darnot looking to rejoin the Mets this week which might be good. I mean, it really couldn't be much worse. Later in the show, Chris will talk with Anthony DeComo, Mets beat writer for MLB.com, about some of these same issues. So you can get an actual insider's view that knows what he's talking about instead of us two yahoos. And we'll wrap things up with your emails. Episode 122 of Amazing Avenue Audio. Starts now. And uh, Eric Campbell is the Mets' everyday third baseman, Chris. That he is. He did hit a home run last night. The other thing that happened. He didn't make one of the worst throws I've ever seen on a 
Major League Baseball diamond. I won't say professional baseball diamond because that would be a lie. But on a Major League <laughs> Baseball diamond trying to start a 5-4-3 double play. Um, and look, you know, it's it's fine to like Eric Campbell. Soup's on. That's great. Uh, probably should not be a Major League starter. What's uh, Adderlin Rodriguez up to these days? Playing first poorly. Uh. Um... <laughs> Yeah, so obviously the Mets really haven't had a need internally to develop a third baseman over the last decade, and they have not. Um, Aaron Balderas, who once upon a time was a third base process of note, prospect of note in the Mets system, is now mashing in Japan, I believe. It might be Korea, but I think it's Japan. I could look this up. It's always bad when we're like four minutes into the show, and I'm... Uh, <laughs> Searching for a long, dead Mets prospect that's currently playing in Japan. But here we are. Yes, he's with the Yokohama Bay Stars. Oh, he's not hitting so well anymore. Last two years in Japan, he was very good for the Oryx Buffalo and the, uh, again, the Yokohama Bay Stars. He's 32, so he's actually older than Wright. Baseball's weird. But he's carved out a nice little career in Japan. Played there for the last... Eight seasons for the Hanshin Tigers, Orcs Buffalo, and Yokohama Bay Stars. Don't know if he's better than Eric Campbell. We might have to look elsewhere. Yeah. I mean, this is an issue. We know they've been... Uh, Jim DeLoya, their head of pro scouting, was at the Milwaukee Brewers series this past week, as was reported pretty much everywhere. You know, is he looking at Aramis Ramirez, Gene Segura, Carlos Gomez, maybe? Probably Aramis Ramirez. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's one of those situations where we have to sort of be realistic. If I was setting an over-under for games played in 2015, additional games played in 2015 by David Wright, it's like 05 the dude's talking about like checking in with his doctors each week to see if he can start rehab and it's like oh but it also hurts to stand up yeah that's not good so when you see things like you know could they have been in on Juan Uribe I don't know I really don't know sort of the the internal workings of that deal between the, the Dodgers and the Braves but they do need a long term yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll phrase it this way. It's probably a better way to do it. You know, Murphy's on the DL with a quad strain. You know, you hope he's back in two to three weeks. But again, with this team and injuries, who knows? Do they need to look towards a, a, a long-term or at least the rest of the 2015 solution at third base with Herrera back this week and Murphy on the DL for hopefully close to the minimum? <sighs> So, yeah, I say yes. I mean, I'm probably higher on Aramis Ramirez than the average person is right now. Um, there's always the question of whether or not ownership's willing to take on any additional salary at this point. <clears throat> but if they were, he's the type of guy who you'd have to think Milwaukee would be pretty happy to get his salary off of their books, and it wouldn't take that much to get him back. 
you know, he hasn't been that good so far this year, but his track record's pretty good. And he gives you a guy that, hey, if Murphy and Wright come back and Dilson Herrera is good in the meantime, then you end up with a bench that has some combination of those players and you can rotate them in and out, uh, you know, to give rest, especially to Wright. So, uh, you know, he's not the only solution. You mentioned, you mentioned Segura, um, or you can move Flores over to third, play him at short instead. It's, I don't know. I, I'd much rather get into a spot where there's a problem of having too many good infielders uh, than, than not having enough and having the bench that they currently have. So, I, yeah. Aaron Ramirez, and I think you'll probably get the Brewers to eat a little bit of the money left on the deal if they can get rid of him. He is due $14 million for the year, so now that's probably like 9 If they eat 3 you're paying 6 I mean, they should be able to afford that, you would think. Um... The, the trend line for Aramis Ramirez, who was a great baseball player, uh, you know, sort of at his peak for the Cubs, you know, was an all-star level third baseman. Uh, his OPS plus the last four seasons, 136, 127, 108, 66. Again, that 66 is in, in 46 games, but... 46 games for a 37-year-old or 46 bad games for a 37-year-old. We sort of talked about this. We talked about Juan Uribe a couple weeks ago. Can be more of a negative portent than they might be for a 27-year-old. I mean, it could go bad quickly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess the one encouraging thing looking at him is that the the power is still sort of there, but that's not been his entire game for a while. You know, it, that, that was probably the case back when he was hitting 30-something home runs 10 years ago. But, you know, he's been more of a an average on base and a little bit of slugging guy the last couple of years. Yeah, and, if, and you know, if, even if I could, if you could guarantee me his 2014 line, for the rest of the season, you know, 280, 330, 420. I take it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, when you look at what you're getting, what you're replacing with that, you know, that sounds appealing. I mean, I think that's sort of the thing with the, with the guys who whose names have come up, uh, you know. You're, just, yeah, yeah, there's a huge performance risk with any of them. Yeah. But they're guys that have been good in the past, unless it's Matt Dominguez, who might still be an option. Yeah, I mean, Matt Dominguez in 2013 was basically Wilmer Flores as an but an elite defensive third baseman. Now, do I think he's going to give you that the rest of the year? God no, but he is freely available, um, and he's a very good defensive third baseman, and he's got some pop. Would I, you know, clear a 40 man spot for him? Eh, maybe. I don't know. I mean, you really have to know. You would think the Mets have more information about Wright and specifically about Murphy, too, before they do anything crazy. But, I say crazy, but anything at all. But even if Murph is back in two weeks, you know, how comfortable are you playing the last hundred games of the season with 
Duda at first, Herrera at second, Flores at short, and Murphy at third. Assuming Terry Collins in that scenario will play Delson Herrera over Ruben Tejada. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's that. I mean, I do this almost every week. I'm going to do it again. I'm going to give you the Mets uh, Team Triple Slash for 2015. Two forty three, three oh seven, three seventy four. It's gone up. Ninety two weighted runs created plus. It's not good. But it's not awful. And eh, it's not great. But it's tough to win with you know a bottom ten offense in baseball. And their pitching's been really good. Sort of. And we'll get into that a little bit when we talk about these six man rotation that is no more. But it's really Jacob DeGrom and Matt Harvey have been really good. And Noah Syndergaard might be pretty good. But one of the reasons, you know, they're not rolling off 11 wins again, you know, they basically played like a 70-win team for the last, you know, fifth of a season or so, the last 30 games, is because they're no longer getting great starting pitching. And there's not enough offense there to sort of carry the load and you know even with you know Murphy's hitting now and I think Murphy will end up being Daniel Murphy as I think we all sort of thought all along Herrera there's some upside there but it's not a guarantee Tejada there's some downside there that we're probably going to see quickly but he's not awful you know Duda's Duda Flores will run into 25 home runs and somehow still post a sub 700 OPS probably you know, Darno getting back will be great, but it just feels like now there's an opportunity to make a move. Like, none of those infielders are David Wright, is what it comes down to. We really need David Wright, and that's probably not going to happen. Because his back is bad. So Aramis Ramirez for, I don't know, outside of the top ten prospect. Are you doing it? Yeah. Why not? Yeah. I mean, I mean it's just the... It, yeah, it, I, it I, smacks it, of, like, the Sean Green trade to me. I don't remember what they gave up for Sean Green. Let's look it up. Let's look it up. More exciting baseball reference searching on the podcast. I need to get a baseball <laughs> reference sponsorship for this show. Since I've contributed to many minutes of dead air. Evan McLean. Oh, Evan McLean. He was like a fringy lefty dude. I remember Evan McLean. So you, it's like you... a, yeah, it's fine. He's like a back-end top 20 type prospect. That okay. sounds about right to me. He still played professionally last year. Where? Mexico? Uh, yes. Yeah, I didn't even last. It's a lucky guess. <laughs> Mexico and then the uh, Dominican Winter League. Yeah, it sounds, I think I actually, I do think I remember him popping up on the Dominican Winter League. What is he, like 28 now? 29? Uh, he was 30, age 31 season age last 31. year. Age 31. I thought he was. 
He had a 2.7 ERA in Mexico. Hey, it's, you know, that's actually a, a high offense environment, too, so good for him. Yeah. I always like hearing the, the like those old prospects are still sort of kicking around. Like Aaron Balderas, it's great for him. He's having a good career in Japan. Um, so there you go. Sean Green, when he was traded to the Mets, was kind of in that sort of... I mean, in, by 2006 standards, he was a uh, below-average hitter. Um, they basically posted the same line as Aramis Ramirez when he was 10% better than league average last year. Because there's no offense anymore. But it was the same kind of uh, deal. And he was an average-ish hitter the rest of the way for the Mets in 2006. And then an average-ish hitter in 2007 for them. And look, if they can get an average-ish hitter at third, you know, whether it's Daniel Murphy and Dilson Herrera does the same at second, or they bring in a bat to do that, that's not the worst thing in the world right now. Average is good. They can have an average bat and upgrade in a few places right now. So we're okay with Aramis Ramirez. I'm not really big on Gene Segura, though. I just don't. They're not moving Flores, right? And yeah, I'm, I'm not crazy about Segura either. And he's not going to be available for this year's Evan McLean. No, that's cost a little more. I don't know who this year's Evan McLean is. Hmm. Back end of the top twenty arm with a shot. That would be like. Oh, that's Twitter will hate me. That's like Casey Meisner. Or people like Casey Meisner a lot more than me, so. Could have been Mazzoni, but they already that already, Mazzoni, that already happened. <laughs> Mazzoni would have worked, yes. Speaking of pitchers, the Mets are using five of them, Chris. Yes. So... Unsurprisingly, I guess kind of unsurprisingly, the uh, six-man rotation experiment did not not last long. Dylan G has a move to the bullpen, and Dylan G is not happy about that. So we'll get into the nuts and bolts of this, but how concerned should we be about Dylan G's feelings, Chris? <sighs> not at all. And, you know, he's probably one of the nicest guys, the most polite guys in the bunch. Um, he, I don't know. I it feels like he's probably the last guy who would say things publicly that were, you know, negative or, or, or of, of the nature that he's said recently. So I get it. Um, and I'm not saying that the outcome as a pitcher is going to be the same, but Wade Davis wasn't happy about moving to the bullpen either. I mean, nobody is. Why, you know, why would you be? It's, your odds of, you know, making more money and, and being a more prominent member of the team are higher if you stay in the rotation. So I get it, but uh, you know, I, I if Dylan G says that publicly about moving to the bullpen, I cannot wait for John Neese's quotes if he has to go to the bullpen for Stephen Matz. So there was sort of a. Every beat writer was kind of like, oh, you know, Dylan G's a great guy. It's like he's just venting and, you know, fans. You know what? What beat writers need from Dylan G is completely different from what Mets fans need from Dylan G. Like, I get it. Dylan G, good or bad start, sits there, talks to the media. He makes their job easier. 
which is great for the beat writers. He's a below-average starter, not so great for Mets fans. Right, and I think people still, certain co-hosts of Amazing Avenue Audio past and future, perhaps. I'm talking about Rob Castellano. You can just say Rob Castellano. I don't think he listens to the show. He's probably in bed already. <laughs> yes, Rob will uh, will go back and, and cite those 30 starts that he had in a row as something that he did and something he could do again, and it's just not realistic, you know? And it's, I mean, I, I, the, the beat writer thing is, it's understandable. I get it, you know, uh, in my time down in St. Lucie and and my time there each year is brief, but Dylan G is one of the few guys who's come out, you know, as he's doing his stuff on the field. Hey, good morning. How are you? You know, just there's that sense that he doesn't come off like he's better than you because he's a player, you know? So I, I, get that um and that's why i'm like oh yeah he's you know he he comes off as a kind of like a, a good dude but you know i i want the mess to win games and uh and his staying in the rotation is not the most likely way to make that happen and i also think i'm not saying he's going to be great but i think he could actually be okay as a relief pitcher uh, yeah, you know, you've but- written about it for the site I have. So, yeah, go go back and find that. It, it, it's relatively Googleable. <laughs> um, I mean, it's this is from a baseball standpoint, at least, the right move. And we'll deal with John Neese as necessary, but you know, the Mets are more tied to John Neese over the medium term than they are Dylan G since he still has another guaranteed year left on the deal. And, you know, he's shown flashes this year of, you know, good Johnny's. Now, that said, once the Super 2 deadline, I mean, it's probably already passed, but once it's definitely passed, um, I think you'll see Stephen Matz in some way or another. But this keeps, you know, if the Mets are going to win, as we sort of said during the the last little spiel, you know, giving more starts to Matt Harvey and Jacob Degrom, probably a good strategy, I would say. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Seems reasonable <laughs> to me. It's the way I'd go. Another thing that might help the Mets uh, in the the first place New York Mets four games over 500, baby, in the next week or so, is they're actually getting players back off the disabled list. They, this does eventually happen, apparently. Dilson Herrera and Travis Darno are going to rejoin the club this week. Sounds like Wednesday. They're playing in Vegas tonight. I imagine they'll play Monday, maybe Tuesday, depending on, I think, a red eye in Wednesday or whatever. Uh, and Bobby Parnell. Uh, is going to join the Mets come hell or high water because his rehab stint ends in two days. Vic Black has already been taken off his rehab assignment and optioned to Vegas. And we'll start with Herrera. We'll start with Herrera. We'll start with Herrera. Because Travis Arnault obviously is going to come in, be the everyday catcher like he was before his injury. You know, as far as performance goes, we'll see. He's been. There does not seem to be any 
lingering effects of the broken finger against Florida State League pitching. So that's something, I guess. Um, we'll see how he does in the majors. But Dilson Herrera coming off the disabled list this week. He kind of has to play every day at second base now, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> that That's my answer. You would think. But I don't know. Rumor Tejada, he, he might be for real. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't even know, dude. I don't even know what to do with Ruben Tejada. Let me tell you. He's only 25. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, he, he debuted so young. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing... The funny thing is, there's nothing particularly unsustainable about his performance. I mean, the batting average on balls in play is a little high. Fine, he probably won't won't maintain that. But he's, you know, done this before-ish. He's hitting more doubles... Um, which again could just sort of be a fluky thing, but you know he has you know 2011, 2012. He's basically an average major league hitter that can play up the middle. That is valuable. Those yeah. are things that happen. Probably can't I, play third base, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, I I love that he hit five home runs last year in his worst really full season. I mean, what he did in 2013 was really bad. Uh, but in terms of... He was of, so bad, he was not allowed to play a full season. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, it's... When he did those things in 2011 and 12, at the age he was at then, you know, even though there was very, very little power there, just kind of hitting for average, taking... The occasional walk, certainly uh, more walks than Wilmer Flores. Yes. You know, I get I get what Patrick Flood was on to <laughs> at, at, at that point. I'm just happy I'm winning my long-term G versus Familia bet now, finally, sort of, I think. Oh, I, I think so. I mean... It goes back to 2011, I think, or 2012. <laughs> I mean, 2012. Yeah. End of 2012, right when he made like some top back end top 100 lists, and Patrick was doing one of it. The the, the might have been actually the 2000. He was like predicting who would be the best players in the 2016 Mets. Um, over at SMI. yeah, that, that, that sounds about right. Yeah, I think he was doing it five years out, but uh, yeah, I'm feeling good about the familiar pick because sometimes those two turn into really good late inning relievers, and that's valuable. But he might be on to something with Ruben Tejada, who's had a really weird career. There's no other way to describe it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, not just the ups and downs of performance, but the showing up on time and showing up late. <laughs> thing. Like, I never I never got that. Like, why, why with him? I don't. Yeah. I think, I don't know. I don't know. I is again a really weird career. Because I mean, one of sort of Patrick Flood's thesis, my Patrick Flood's basic thesis was here: guys that are average regulars at twenty-one tend to turn into really good players. 
Right. And that just sort of hasn't happened. At the hottest profile was always weird because he was extremely polished for a Dominican teenager. And even if you look back at his his minor league career, he never really. I mean, it was this was the era of Omar Minaya, so you know he was an eighteen year old in the Florida State League, <laughs> and then uh, you know he spent yeah thirty five games in rookie ball at seventeen, and they jumped him directly to the Florida State League the next year. And he yeah. didn't do much. I mean, he really did not do much. He had a five eighty eight OPS, so they promoted him to Binghamton the next year. <laughs> <laughs> and then he was like, you know, pretty good for a 19-year-old in the uh, Eastern League. He had 290, took some walks. You know, he was good in Buffalo, and then he got more of the same in Buffalo, really, I would say. He had 280, took some walks, and he was a major leaguer. Then he was the Mets' everyday shortstop. So he's never, I don't, It's it's tough to sort of get a feel for what Ruben Tejada is. And Ruben Tejada is two years younger than Jacob deGrom? Uh, yeah. And he was in the majors the year deGrom was drafted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and again, we're comparing pitchers and position players, which really isn't uh, ideal for those kind of like age-based comparisons, but just for like context, it's... I don't know how we end up just talking about Ruben Tejada. We're really talking about Dilson Herrera. But... It's entirely possible that you know Terry will do things like play Ruben Tejada over Delson Herrera if Delson doesn't get back to a great start off the disabled list, the broken hand or broken tip of his finger. Yes. Again, doesn't seem to be slowing him down against Florida State League pitching. But you know the ceiling for Ruben Tejada is probably what we saw in 2011, 2012, which is an average major leaguer, which is all right, but. The Mets are a below-average offensive team, and they may need to play for Herrera's upside. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean it's. Uh, I think you you look at what he did last year, and Herrera was you know kind of holding his own. I think was kind of the acceptable, normal thing to say about him. Um, yeah, sure. And he raked in AAA this year, and then came up and didn't do great but played weird and be infrequently. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, to me, it, who knows how long Murphy is out, but whatever the case, as long as Wright is out, you have to put him in there every day at, at second base. You know, if, if you get to a point, you know, let's say two weeks from today, the Mets are still relevant in whatever way that is, whether it's the division or the wild card or, or whatever, but you get to that point and they're still relevant, you know, it might be time to say, all right, we still don't have any significant timeline on, on David Wright. Uh, you know, Herrera's playing second, Tejada's playing short, and, and Flores is just going to play third. I know they're very committed to Flores not moving off shortstop, but I feel like there has to come a time when you prioritize the current season if it's still going well I mean if Daniel Murphy ends up missing six weeks with a leg injury which it's a Mets I wouldn't bet against it necessarily they would have to seriously consider sort of aligning it Herrera at second Tejada at short Flores at third 
and they've really always been able to avoid moving Flores to third so far this season. They never really had their hand forced by anything. But, you know, even doing it for two weeks. You know, we're 50, what, 56 games into the season now? So a little uh, over a third of the way. They're 30 and 26, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, sounds right. They're a little more than a third of the way into the season. you got to start sort of like... I don't want to say it's a playoff race. Because we're not... We're another month and a half from that, probably. But you got to kind of start, you know, leveraging what you can where you can. And they're starting to do it. They moved LNG to the bullpen. They're going with the five-man rotation. You know, if it's August 8th and they're still in a playoff race, you know, any innings cap that supposedly exists might start to go out the window. Right. You know, but you're you're going to see Steven Matz and they'll find some way to do something with Nice or Cologne, depending on what's going on at that point in time. Yeah, I, I think July is sort of an underrated month in terms of <laughs> Mets' complete catastrophes. It's true. I, I Didn't they come out of the All-Star break just an utter mess last year? Yeah, I mean, they've had... we did our live show. I remember that being an issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it was. Um, but they've had some terrible Septembers, and not just the most infamous ones of, of recent vintage, but... Um, I get it. That's probably still been the worst month in franchise history. But they've had some Julys where <laughs> the relevance goes completely out the window, and you get to the trade deadline, and you go, who, who can they trade away by, by the time the month is over? Um, so, yeah. No, I, I think that's right. I think kind of making a little bit of a push in, in whatever way you can at this point can be significant. I mean, the best case scenario for Wright right now is that they get his back into a place where he can play late in the season, right? Uh, I mean, that seems... Probably, and then you you just don't know what you're getting is the problem. I guess the one encouraging... And, and man, it's like, it's eight games, so I don't want to read too much into it. I mean, he was hitting in eight games, if you want to... But it's, it's just... Yeah I, yeah, I guess what I'm saying is that in, in those eight games, he had this condition. We just didn't, <laughs> we just didn't know about it yet. Uh, yeah, this is where we're grasping at straws at this point. I know, I know. But I'm not saying he maintains that, but... But, yeah. I mean, the, the, the back condition probably explains the hamstring. I mean, I my lower back constantly hurts, and my hamstrings also constantly hurt. So, I think the two might be related. I actually got a my wife got us lost on a hike in a state park last uh, yesterday. So now my legs really hurt because I ended up walking way more than and way more uphill <laughs> over rocky terrain and partially marked trails than I should have. So I can sympathize. Brady Aiken is off the board. Yeah, Cleveland at number 17. The Phillies drafted a high school shortstop who's not a shortstop, so we're back to normal there. 
We're still 36 picks away from the Mets' first selection of the 2015 draft. So before we go to your interview with Anthony DeComo that covers a lot of these same issues, uh, a little bit about Bobby Parnell. So he'll be up this week basically because he kind of has to be. He's been topping out at 94 in his rehab starts and getting absolutely shelled in both St. Lucie and Binghamton. Uh, I mean, this kind of has to happen now because the Mets have painted themselves into a corner. But is he really you know, going to send down Jack Leathersitch? Is Bobby Parnell a better major league option right now than Jack Leathersitch? <sighs> yeah, he might not be. You know, I mean, it's... <clears throat> I, I, if we're... <laughs> If I'm making a David Wright had this back condition when he played for eight games thing, if I'm if I'm going with that as the best potential outcome, then maybe this whole it's not a major league game. He's not amped up. It doesn't you know whatever. I mean, it, this is just hypothetical. I don't actually believe any of that. I I, I think the whole closer thing is bullshit in terms of having the energy and whatever and getting your finishing the game and I mean they're playing, playing up to that you know I've seen plenty of veterans on rehab assignments just sort of you know getting their legs under them going through the motions that's fine but it's different when you're coming off Tommy John surgery you know you're rehabbing from that right because then you need to see that the stuff has come back you know we consider it perfunctory because so many people have it at this point but it's still major surgery with complications afterwards and Parnell is at this point you know 13 months off surgery not 18 like Harvey was yeah yeah no there's, he, he's on the short end of the uh, timeline that's for sure and you know it's I didn't have Parnell in my AAOP for a reason. I don't think you could tender him knowing that, you know, it's we're 50 games into the season now and he's only 13 or so months off surgery. You just don't know what you're going to get. Now, if you wanted to keep him, you non-tender him, or before you tender him, you work out a two-year deal for maybe a little bit more guaranteed money than whatever they offered him, you know, two and five. You let him rehab at a normal pace this year and then try to get the the benefit on the back end. And you're still getting him at basically at, at, at cheap ARB prices. But now that they don't have him past this season because he's a free agent, they've committed, you know, $4.5 or so to him, which, for the Mets, you know, it's not a backbreaker, but it's not an insignificant sum. They want to recoup value here, so they're rushing him back to the majors. And look, you know, I just said Mets fans and beat writers have sort of different views of these players and what they want for them. You know, Mets fans just want performance. And yeah, that that should be true to a certain extent. But Dylan G, you know, he's getting paid, however, you know, I think close to $6 million this year. And the man doesn't really matter. I, I know, they're all competitors. But, you know, if they non-tender him this year, he'll sign somewhere. He'll sign a major league deal next season for some team to start. You know, those teams might not be willing to give anything of significance in the trade market for him right now, but he'll find a major league job next year. You know, Bobby Parnell may not find a major league job next year because he's being rushed back from Tommy John surgery, so the Mets can 
recoup their you know the price of their tender essentially. And that kind of sucks for Bobby Parnell. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, right after he had the injury and the surgery, I remember thinking about an extension. So, that, I mean, that's, that's sort of exactly what you're saying. You know, even just a two-year deal, two- or three-year deal, something that, you know, you kind of take on a shared risk where the player doesn't know with 100% certainty that he's going to get back to a point that he can earn millions of dollars being a player and the team doesn't know with with that level of certainty that he's going to get back to being effective or, or as good as he used to be um, but that didn't happen so you know it's kind of a we're left at this spot yeah and again probably Parnell I made a joke not really a joke. I made a quip on Twitter that sort of by Parnell's 2015 will become a textbook example, sort of the principal agent theory for uh, you know poli sci or economics majors. But you know he had no say over what happened. I mean, you know, Mets had the option to tender him a contract for what was going to be probably close to what he made the previous season because he didn't pitch at all. And then they're sort of, he's sort of at the mercy of what the Mets want to do with him. And yeah, I understand that you know, these guys want to pitch. That's why they're where they are, because they're wired that way. But it's probably not in his medical interest to be pitching right now. From what he's shown in his rehab starts so far. The stuff is not back. If you force him to pitch through it, you know, if, if they had that sort of that two-year deal, that I suggested earlier, you could shut him down right now. You know, yeah, you try to bring him back, fine. Shut him down for three months, then let him ramp back up. But the Mets aren't going to do that because it's not in their interest to do that. They want to. Their interest is bringing whatever value they can out of him for the balance of 2015. And yes, he's getting compensated fairly well for it. But it's just not, I don't, it's always something that makes me a little bit uncomfortable. And what, in sort of the same sort of line of thinking, what are you really wringing out of him if he's 91 to 94 right now? Right. Yeah, I don't. I I don't know what he is at that point, you know. Well, that's the thing. I mean, he in his last full season, he found some success throwing more two seamers, taking a little off for to improve his command. He still averaged ninety five miles an hour. You know, I joke all the time. You know, ninety one, ninety four with the breaking ball. Yeah, you see that in every double A pen, and you do. Um, you know, Parnell was Parnell in part because he had a 70-grade fastball. And that makes everything else play up. And whatever, whether it's in the knuckle curve or the slider or, or whatever. In 91-94, you know, he's just another dude. 
and a dude that's getting, you know, again, it's a rehab assignment, but he's getting lit up by high A and double A hitters. Not just struggling, he's getting lit up. You know, that stuff does matter to a certain extent when you're coming off, you know, that kind of surgery. I mean, he might just not be ready yet, and that's fine. He's 13 months removed from major elbow surgery. So I don't really see what the benefit is to Bobby Parnell or to the Mets to be pitching right now. But there's, you know, there's... different agendas in place here. I guess is the best way to put it. I'm not making the podcast less depressing. That's been a <laughs> recurring theme comment lately. So what I will do is we'll take a break now, and when we come back, Chris will uh, talk with Andy DeComo of MLB.com. That's beat reporter there. My pitch talks, buddy, about some of these same issues. Joining us this week on Amazing Avenue Audio is Anthony DeComo. Uh, he's the Mets beat reporter for MLB.com. You're all probably familiar with his work. Anthony, thanks for joining us this week. Absolutely. Happy to uh, happy to finally be on the podcast. Yes. It's, it's <laughs> been in the works for a while. It has been. It has been. Long time coming. Yes. But uh, worth the wait, you know. So well, we'll uh, find out, uh, I guess. <laughs> so the Mets are in first place. Uh, did, sure. you, did you think that would be the case on June 8th? No, um, you know, when they fell behind the Nationals and, and got, you know, a game or two behind them, I, I just, I didn't think they would ever catch up. And that was more to do with the Nationals than it was to do with the Mets. Um, you know, I just thought they were obviously a really good team and, and they still are, but they're a struggling team. And for whatever reason, uh, which we've seen before from the Nationals, they've been struggling to put it together, um, you know, the Mets have had their their down periods too, and I'm still very concerned about the offense. I still think the bullpen is being held together by pieces of string right now, uh, but it's working well enough in a weak division, and, uh, you know, the Mets need to take advantage of this now, and they are. They're in first place, uh, you know, and you can debate how how much they necessarily, I don't know if deserve is the word, but... but uh, you know, you can debate how much uh, of that is their own doing, how much of it is them getting lucky, how much of it is the rest of the division sort of, like I said, being weak around them. But uh, at the end of the day, they've they've played well enough to take first place. And uh, no, I didn't think they'd be here, but uh, that doesn't mean they can't stay here. Uh, if they, you know, they there's definitely some areas they can improve. There's definitely some areas that I think they will improve. Uh, so they have a chance to make this thing fun now over the next couple of months. Yeah, I'm probably one of the more optimistic people on the current bullpen, but um, I, I understand, you know, not all these guys are established players, and, you know, there's just this long history of the bullpen being terrible. So I, I understand why fans 
and I tend to get apprehensive um, about it, or in your case, you know, uh, writers. Um, but yeah, the starting rotation, I guess, is uh, is relevant here. There are currently five starters in the rotation. How many men will be in the starting rotation a week from today? <laughs> that's to say, that's a loaded question. Um, you know, I think it'll be five. I think it'll still be five. Uh, and the reason why I say that is obviously they tried six and uh, it didn't work. Not that it didn't work from a logistical standpoint, because I actually thought it was a pretty sound plan. And I thought uh, if you're looking to ways for ways to limit Matt Harvey and Jacob DeGrom, et cetera, et cetera, uh, I thought that was the best way to do it. But clearly there were people within the organization that didn't feel that way. Clearly there were uh, people slash pitchers who weren't necessarily thrilled with the idea of the six-man rotation and – that one out and I, you know, I, I guess it wouldn't shock me if they flip flopped again, considering they've already done it once, but uh, no, I think that they're going to go with the five man now. And what's going to be interesting to see is if Matt Harvey, for example, is going out there and throwing seven plus innings every time out, which he's done. Uh, how are they going to do this thing? Because at some point somebody's going to have to stand up and say, Matt, you're sitting down. Uh, you know, Dylan G, for example, is going to start in your place. And they're going to have to do that three or four times over the course of the summer if they really want this guy to last September and into October if it gets that far. Um, so uh, it's it's kind of becoming this soap opera now where we're wondering how and when they're going to pull the trigger on things like this. Um, but it has to happen at some point. And uh, I, I did think the six-man was the best way. Uh it's now no longer happening, and I don't see them going back to it anytime soon. Even if a Stephen Matz comes up in a couple of weeks, I just don't see them going back to six. Yeah, and do you think Matz is maybe going to make his debut that soon in a couple of weeks? He should. I mean, I, I think it's. Uh, I don't think it's any secret. They're, they're waiting until the Super Two uh, cutoff date, which is probably right. going to be. He, what's today, June 9th, it's probably going to be, yeah, in about a week and a half, something like that. Um, I don't see any reason why he shouldn't be up immediately after that. Um, you know, he, he it's a joke what he's doing in the Pacific Coast League. He, he's clearly too good for the level right now at one of the, you know, foremost hitters parks in that league. Um, so, yeah, it, you know, it, it could make for a messy situation because you still have – say, a John Neese in the rotation, uh, do you just boot him out the way you did with Dylan G, assuming he's he's pitching the worst of anyone there? Do you put him in the bullpen? Do you bring Matt's up, up as a reliever? And, uh, you know, because you're going to have to limit his innings, too, and wait for an injury or something like that. I, I'm, I'm really not sure, but just keeping Matt's down there in AAA, and I'm all for keeping him down until the Super 2 passes. I get it. I have no problem with it. I know some fans might, but I don't. Um but once that passes and once you're in the clear as far as as far as that goes and his future earnings and all that, I mean, as, as unless he goes and takes a nosedive over the next two weeks, uh, he should be up immediately. There's just no reason why not. Yeah, the Mets are sort of in this spot where they have this logjam in the rotation. They clearly have some needs in the infield right now, if only because of the injuries. Um you know, so the, you're in a spot where you have these extra guys who are good. They're major league players, but they're not good enough to go out and get 
the things that you need, uh, third baseman, right. you know, that sort of thing. But what's your read on the trade market? I know it's early. I know Sandy Alderson is very uh, noncommittal when he speaks publicly about this stuff. But what's your read? Are the Brewers getting closer to, to giving up? Is somebody like Aramis Ramirez maybe uh, a little more available? Uh, I think the Brewers would love to give up a 37-year-old third baseman who can't hit anymore, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's you hit the nail on the head. It's a, it's a really tough market because you've got, especially with the second wild card now we've seen the past couple of years, you've got all these teams who probably aren't in it who think they are. Um, and kudos to them. Like the Marlins, for example, came out publicly last week and said, you know, well, we think we're just fine, and we don't want to trade Martin Prado. He's still got a year and a half of team control, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, you look at them, and they're 10 games out of first place already and clearly an inferior team to the Nationals. Uh, I would say clearly an inferior team to the Mets. So you're like, really? You still think you're in it? Um, but that's the prerogative as a team. And if they don't want to trade a guy like Martin Prado, who still has another year plus of team control, they don't have to. And that's just one example. Um, but there just aren't a ton of guys out there who can be had. And so it just creates the snowball effect where those guys who are available are going to get tons of interest. You're already hearing about every team in the league wants Ben Zobris, for example. And, and, and you know, I'm not sure. While Ben Zobris would be a great fit for the Mets and is definitely someone they should pursue, I'm not sure he's the be-all and end-all at this stage of his career either. Um, but, yeah, it's clear trading a John Neese with his salary and his injury concerns and his performance concerns, trading a Dylan G uh, uh, with all of the above as well, you know, isn't going to net them an answer at third base. Uh, so they're going to have to either get real creative with this thing or they're going to have to suck it up and trade one of their top flight pitchers, which I know they won't do unless they really feel like they're getting value in terms of a guy who could help them long-term, which as far as, you know, last I checked, there aren't a lot of, third baseman or, or shortstops out there who who fit that description. Um, or they're just going to have to suck it up at third base and figure out another way to improve their team. But uh, it's it's a tough spot because it's obvious they need to make a trade. Uh, the longer this goes on, the worse it is. I mean, it, it would behoove them to make one sooner rather than later, knowing that David Wright ostensibly will come back eventually. Uh, and, and, you know, you need the help now more than you need the help later. But uh, there's just not a ton out there that they can do. So it's, it's a really tough situation. It's going to be an interesting one to watch over the next month or so. Right. You sort of have this situation where, you know, I, when Zobrist's name first got floated, you know, you, you, I saw some Mets fans saying, oh, where's he going to play? What's he going to do? And it's, it's not like the starting rotation where you have too many guys and not enough spots. You know, in in the worst-case scenario – if you were to get a guy like that or Prado or, or anybody else like that, who's a good solid major league player and then Wright and Murphy come back, then you just have a really excellent bench. You can rest David Wright because it seems pretty obvious that he's going to need it. You know, whether he's playing 75% of games or 60% of games or, or whatever it is, you know, to kind of keep his back uh, as healthy as it can be. Right. That's why you need a versatile guy like a Zobrist or a Prado. Um, that's why, to me, a guy like an Aramis Ramirez, even if he was hitting, isn't a great answer. 
because you can only play him at third base, essentially. Um, it's not like you can DH him in the American League or something like that. Uh, so you really need a guy who, when Daniel Murphy comes back, which is going to happen sooner rather than later, and, and when David Wright comes back, whenever that might be, uh, you need a guy who you can plug all over. You can play in the outfield, you know, give Granson a day. You can play at third base maybe twice a week if it comes to that to give David days. You can sit Daniel Murphy when he's on one of his inevitable, you know, two for 30 stretches, which he always follows with a 20 for 30 stretch, but whatever. <laughs> you know, you know, these are the things that happen. You can find a way to play a guy like that five days a week. It's, it's not all that difficult. Um, but if you have a guy who can only play a third base, and then David Wright comes back and, and you're playing him twice a week, then that's probably not worth what you'd have to give up in prospects. Uh, you know, what you might be paying him where you could use that money elsewhere and so on and so forth. So, uh, it's, it's a really tough spot. Um, and then when, when you factor in, like I said, all the competition for a guy like Zobris, for example, um, you're probably gonna have to give up a lot more than a guy like that's worth. And Sandy Ellison's track record as GM shows that he's not willing to overpay for players under any circumstance. Um, so when you factor all that together, I, I, it, it really baffles me as to what the Mets think they can do here. Um, but like I said, you know, right now they're running out Ruben Tejada and Eric Campbell and Danny Muno every day. You know, the sooner they could do something, the better. I, I just don't see anything really surfacing right this second. So it's, it's an issue. Right. I'm enjoying this Ruben Tejada thing right now because it's, <laughs> it's, it's so unexpected and so entertaining. Uh, but I obviously don't expect it to sustain itself. Yeah. I don't think anyone does. And I don't think the Mets do either. They probably would have much more seriously considered moving Wilmer Flores off shortstop. I mean, if you really think Ruben Tejada is playing every day for the next month or two months or whatever it might be, uh, it makes a ton more sense to play him at short and, and move Wilmer Flores either the second or third. So the fact that they didn't do that in my mind says that, you know, I think everyone realizes Ruben's going to come back to earth at some point. And, uh, you know, maybe Dilson Herrera is the answer at some point. Maybe you've made an acquisition by that time. But, um, no, I don't think Ruben Tejada is going to hit 450 for the rest of the year. Yeah, prob- probably not. <laughs> uh, Dilson Herrera, that was a nice segue into players coming back this week. Hopefully he's back. Uh, Travis Darno. It sounds like if they don't have any hiccups in the next night or two in Las Vegas, they'll be back. Uh, but Bobby Parnell sounds like he's going to make it back from the DL before Vic Black. And the reports kind of throughout their rehab assignments have seemed better on Black throughout. Um, so I know why, you know, the reason that they're giving in terms of the dates and you have options and all this sort of stuff. But in terms of just looking at what's best to win games right now, you know, do do you see Parnell making sense over black and getting back sooner? Um, yeah, that's a really good question. I, I, Bobby, the whole situation confuses me a little bit because, you know, it's not that hard to come up with some reason to take him off his rehab for, for a week and then, you know, start the clock over. So the fact that, you know, his rehab clock was going to be up on Wednesday, uh, you know, they could have figured something out to keep that going. Um, but, you know, can he help this team? I, I guess we'll find out. You know, this is the one thing about Bobby Parnell, I'll say, 
is, and I know he he's had a bad rap for whatever reason throughout the years. Even when he was closing games very well, I feel like a large portion of the fan base didn't really trust him ever. Oh um, yeah, and I, I I always got that impression too. And I yeah, I remember no. not not trying to like toot my own horn here and say oh I was right, but <laughs> I I remember looking at it and saying. This guy's been very good. You know, it made sense to give him the shot at closing when he got it, and and he he ran with it. He you know he got even better once he got that spot. So right, and that's my point. I never thought that rap was totally fair. Um, I I think Bobby Parnell's a, a much better pitcher than people give him credit for. Uh, this is a guy who, when he first came up, essentially was Vic Black. He had great 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 stuff and couldn't always harness it. Uh, and he really figured out, you know, if you look at his career and you look at the, the when he started to break out, um, he could still throw 98 and he just chose not to. And you could you could see it because he would max out at 98, 99 in a lot of his outings, but he would learn to sit at 94, maybe 95 and pitch. And he really used the secondary pitchers more than a lot of closers do. Uh, he learned to spot the pitches. He learned to do essentially everything you would want a good pitcher to do. Uh, so. If anyone can get by in sort of this diminished state that Bobby Parnell is clearly in, you know, I think he can do it. Um, but it's hard to trust it because he hasn't been able to do it at the minors. Um, he's not that far out from surgery, relatively speaking. We're at, what, 14 months now, uh, whereas Matt Harvey started the year at 17 months, and that's the benchmark that everyone uses. Um so you like to think it's going to get better as it goes along, and maybe that's what the Mets think, uh, that he'll sort of, quote-unquote, learn, learn on the fly at the big league level in terms of you know what his arm is capable of doing this far out of surgery. Um, but it's it's going to be interesting. You know, the, the one thing that's good for the Mets is that obviously because Jairus Familia is doing so well, it's not like they have any sort of controversy down there. Everyone knows Familia is the closer. I don't think Bobby Parnell will care one bit if the Mets ease him in and start using him in the sixth inning of games to prove himself but it does have the potential for a little bit of a messy situation if he goes out and starts walking guys and doing what he was doing down in the minors which was not much of of productivity um so we'll see how the next week or two plays out um it could turn messy but like I said I I think Parnell you know if you're going to trust in someone uh, if you're going to have sort of that blind faith that you need to have, given what he did in the minors, I, I would feel okay trusting in him versus uh, a guy like Vic Black, who you know may be more popular but doesn't really have the track record. Yeah, Black has kind of been a little more fan-friendly. He's out there. He's on Twitter. Um, but coming into the season, even assuming he was healthy, you know, he didn't have anywhere near the track record. The walks were always an issue. You know, I think there was probably a little bit too optimistic of a take on what he was or is at this stage in terms of being a major league relief pitcher. Um, so yeah, I think I think people are definitely colored uh, by the fact that this guy is very gregarious, very popular. I think you know writers can be guilty of it too. Um, you know, I don't think people would have been chronicling the rehab of a middle reliever, reliever as closely as they did if, if he wasn't all of those things. And not to say that he's not a good pitcher and anything like that. Um, just, I, I think, you know, people forget that he's really not that accomplished, that this is a guy who couldn't crack the opening day roster a year ago because, not because of injury, but because of ineffectiveness and has had a bunch of injury problems since then. Uh, you know, it's you like to see a 
guy like that, you want to see him have more control. You want to see him. You want to you want to know what you're getting when you come up here. You want don't have to bring him into a game and be like, all right, is he going to walk the first two batters before we see him find the strike zone and and, and do what we know he can do? Um, there's nothing in his track record that's really shown they can do it. Not that he can't, but um, you know, I think that's definitely the reason. And, and kudos for the Mets. You know, they're sort of trusting their own scouting, their own internal scouting on this. Obviously, the numbers say Black could be more effective right now in the majors than Parnell does, but if they see something different and their scouts are telling them something different, uh, that's not always the most the easiest thing to do is to go away from the popular move, and, and that's what they did. So uh, I don't necessarily mind the move. Um, I think it could have the potential to turn ugly if Parnell doesn't have a, a good go of it here in the big leagues, but uh, I think the process is not necessarily unsound. All right. Well, Anthony, thanks for uh, joining us again. And uh, if listening, if you're listening, you can find Anthony on Twitter at Anthony DeComo uh, and find his work on MLB.com and Mets.com. And, and uh, yeah, thanks again. Happy to be on. Thank you. It's time for your emails. Before we do emails, we do housekeeping. This is Mason Avenue Audio, episode 122. Mason Avenue Audio is the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. You can find us on the internet at amazingavenue.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Amazing Avenue. And join our Facebook group at facebook.com backslash Amazing Avenue, which has recently just gone over 10,000 likes on Facebook. That's a nice round number. It is. Round number, man. You find the Steve, podcast. Steve Shriver, yes, done a great Steve. job there. Even if he's just, like, you know, sharing Jim Brewer's uh, <laughs> recap over I, and over I enjoy again. Jim Brewer recap That's fine. You're, he actually uh, threw out the first pitch at the game you skipped out on. Yes. To watch my hockey team work its way towards death. You got to watch Matt Harvey hang a slider to a dude I'd never do, like a fat left-handed first baseman. <laughs> Sorry, bad-bodied left-handed first baseman. Yes. Well, based on uh, past podcast uh, feedback, Steve has a voice for Facebook. Yeah, that's true, I suppose. That's, that's fair. <laughs> you also missed out potentially being on TV. I know, I know. But I got to make a fan shot out of it because I did. saw it at home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can find the podcast on iTunes. Just search for Amazing Avenue Audio and you can listen or subscribe right there. Also find the podcast on the Stitcher app. Download directly from blogtalkradio.com backslash Amazing Avenue. Listen to the embedded player that goes up in the podcast post at Amazing Avenue proper. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro. You can find me on Twitter at Jeff Paternostro. My co-host this week is Chris McShane. You can find him on Twitter at Chris McShane. And our guest this week was Anthony DeComo, who you can find on Twitter at Anthony DeComo. Very easy for all your twittering needs that was the housekeeping these are your emails you can email the podcast at podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com our first email is from the non-pseudonymous JJ Mack with the subject line I hope your podcast cocktail is a strong one tonight because this email is about Gabby Yanoa ahoy Jeffrey and not Jeffrey Gabriel Yanoa what's up with that Excelsior JJ formerly in California but now in Austin Texas 
Um, I wrote about Gabriel Yanoa at the site in some depth, if you want to know what's up with Gabriel Yanoa. Uh, the, the short version is his control has fallen apart and the slider's not there. Which are bad things. I think he might be pitching hurt. That's my working theory. You know, the velocity is a little down. But if he was just getting knocked around, uh, i just say he's just getting knocked around. Because the formerly excellent control has kind of fallen apart to a certain extent, too. I think he might be pitching hurt. Not like injured, but hurt. P.S. I can't remember when you said your next trip to Bingo is going to be, but so if you'll be seeing Yanoa, you can hold off on this email until then. I already saw him. We're going to Bingo next weekend, though, where I probably will not see him barring two rainouts, which might happen, because who knows? They might have gotten rained out tonight. I didn't even look. Did they get rained out tonight? I'll be a little annoyed if they did, because that'll push Gazelman back. Oh, they had a day off. That's right, the travel day. So I'm feeling good then about not seeing Gabriel Yanoa. Though I enjoy seeing Gabriel Yanoa. Um, anyway, I think I'll probably be sending you another email on the bullpen this weekend anyway. And he did! We have another email from the not pseudonymous JJ Mack. <laughs> Ahoy, Jeffrey, an interlocutor in a profoundly strange season. Look, don't, I, like, I tolerate it when Hank does that. Because it's Hank and he sends us emails every week. Let's not make it a uh, trend, people. In a profoundly strange season, that feels like it's going much worse than it is. So too does the Mets bullpen, excepting Jairus Familia. Feel like it's performing worse than it is. And yes, I am writing this the day after the pen gave up four runs in Arizona. No less an authority than AmazingAvenue.com recently proclaimed the Mets pen <laughs> among the best in baseball and by the Chris McShane preferred measurements of ERA minus and FIP, they rank outside... The top ten, just outside the top ten. Although the pen's whip, and don't laugh, XFIP are decidedly middle of the pack. You're getting some preferred measurements, Chris. It's good that you're on. I don't think you haven't been on the show in like two months, so I'm sure JJ did not expect you to get <laughs> this withering commentary um, presented to you live. So why do I get nervous whenever anyone not named Jairus Familia is called from the pen? And why do I sometimes forget that Jack Lillisich and Hansel Robles are on this team? And why can't I forget the probably broken Carlos Torres is, in the words of Howie Rose the other night, our eighth-inning bridge, question mark. Given that Henry Mejia is on schedule to rejoin the team in a month, thank the baseball gods, what does your ideal Mets bullpen look like in 30 days? Who is in the pen and what role? Let's be pessimistic and assume Vic Black and Bobby Parnell will still be struggling in the minors. Well, one of them may be struggling in the minors. One of them, if they are struggling, will be doing so in the majors. And that Rafael Montero will still be trapped in the phantom zone. Aside, does anyone know what's up with him? I think he's been throwing. He has shoulder stiffness. That that's will take your time there with that kind of thing. But let's also be optimistic and assume the return of Jerry Blevins, who's in St. Lucie and tweeting less, so those have to be good signs. And Buddy Carlisle, how long can a back be stiff? I mean, he's older than I am, and my back's always stiff. <laughs> Again, probably comparing myself to elite athletes. Not the best sort of like injury expert kind of stuff to do. Sorry this email ended up on the long side, but at least that other email I sent you was Nathan Pithy. Excelsior JJ, formerly in California, but still in Austin, Texas. Um, I mean, it's a bullpen. I just, I don't fucking know, dude. It's a bullpen. Like, any shit could happen the rest of the year. Yeah, I mean, I will say that we're at a point now where two months into the season, 
They have the fourth best ERA in baseball. Uh, I'm I'm sticking with my among the best in baseball so far. That's definitely been true. Well, I mean, the funny thing is, I sort of said that you know the the Mets have had two clearly above average starters this year and haven't gotten much else out of their starting rotation. But they have one of the best ERAs in baseball because the bullpen has been so good. Yeah, and like and it, you, it's not just Familia. He's been clearly the best, and and he's pitched a significant number of those innings, but. The right. results have been there from the other guys, and they haven't had a ton of turnover either. You no, know, I mean, the, the four best, the four relievers used most this year are uh, Jair Semelia, Carlos Torres, Eric Goodell, and Alex Torres. Probably not a surprise to you, the listener. All of them have ERAs. Well, Carlos's isn't great, but uh, I think he got a little touched up recently. But, you know, Goodell's got an ERA of two flat. Alex Torres is 2.61, and Familia is 1.3. Now, look, those aren't sustainable long-term. Familia's going to give a two-run home run at some point, probably. But these are, you know, f- guys that have been good relievers. I don't know what to tell you. You know, next on the list is Sean Gilmartin, who has an ER under 2.5. They are, to a certain extent, outperforming their peripherals. But... Not so much that it's, you know, reliever FIP. I don't like reliever FIP, as I think I've said before on this podcast. You have. Because you expect, you know, hard-throwing <laughs> dudes to have lower BABIPs, which is one of the major dr- drivers of FIP. You know, J.R. Familia should not be giving up hard contact because J.R. Familia has two grade pitches. But even looking at, you know, throw everybody in there, every annoying, you know, throwing Hansel Robles, who has been probably unlucky to a certain extent. You know, they're, I mean, I'm going to look at Fangrass because that's F4 driven, or FIP driven. You know, it's a 3.05 FIP. That's, in this era, not amazing, but it's above average. This is an above average bullpen right now. And there's nothing particularly crazy here. You know, they have a three to one strikeout to walkout ratio, which is good but not great. Have they been? A, you know, it's a two sixty BABIP as a as a group. You know, their strand rate's a little high. Their home run for fly ball rate, you know, maybe a little low. But again, if you believe in your power arms, those are the kind of things that happen when you have power arms. Right. I, I guess I think some of the apprehension with the bullpen is is fatigue from the last few years where it's been really, really bad uh, and, and the unknown. And I guess bullpen volatility to me uh, is, is just that, you know, just because they're unknown doesn't necessarily make me any more or less comfortable. Right. You don't know because it's just with the relievers, them. dude. It's just you never predict the next fifty innings of relievers. They have a better strikeout percentage than the Royals this year. Which is right, yeah, which is insane. It is kind of insane. Now, is that sustainable? I don't know, dude. They're relievers. Like Familia will be good until Terry Collins grinds his arm into dust, basically. Right. Like I mean, I don't need to tell you that Jerry Familia is good. You said it in your email. 
So, I mean, it's it, Hansel Robles. And you look at these numbers, it's... You know, Jack Leathersitch is kind of what you would have expected Jack Leathersitch to be. He just hasn't given many bombs yet. Um, you know, Robles has been good, I think. You know, he started, you know, he pitched in the eighth inning yesterday, and he might start to take over some of those duties from, you know, him and Goodell from Carlos Torres. I can see that happening. You know, these dudes are missing bats, which is all you can really ask out of your relievers. And they're not walking the ballpark. They've basically had a league average walk rate. That's good-ish. Fine, it's good enough. Even by XFIP, they're 10% better than league average. This is an above-average bullpen, Chris McShane. Yes. That's all I can really ask for. I feel like I have to publish a a list of rankings of uh, my favorite metrics. Go for it. I'd be fine with that. Our next email is from Ray. Hey, Jeff and co-host. See, that's good. Hey, Jeff and co-host. There might be more than one. I can adjust for that. On the last two podcasts, a lot of discussion was devoted to the current level of talent on the Mets and the draft. It may have been discussed at one point, but do you think the Mets front office has made a mistake not sacrificing the regular season in the pursuit of better draft picks? Matt Harvey, the Mets' best player. I'm going to leave that there. Let's pregnant pause, was taken with the highest draft pick the team has had over the past few years. In 2012, the Mets had the 12th pick and took Gavin Cicchini, which is fine, but the pick before was Addison Russell. Because of the Wilpons financial situation, the Mets cannot afford any other way to build other than being through the draft, so why not fully embrace the strategy? Has the mediocrity of the past seven years been any more palatable than being the worst team in baseball? I'm not sure. Thanks as always. Love the pod. Hashtag love the pod. Ray. P.S. Should Parma be purchased by Mike Piazza? Am I wrong to assume it becomes the second official team of the podcast? So this is like the hard tank versus the soft tank debate. Do you want to be the Astros? Or do you want to be the Mets? The Astros hard tanked. They got Carlos Correa. They got Mark Appel and Lance McCullers and a lot of other people in that draft too. Um... You know, they got elite talent. In any draft class, I mean, it varies year to year. But, you know, some years there might be the top five picks are where you want to be. Sometimes they're a little deeper and it's like, you know, eight or nine guys. But, yeah, they've generally picked between 10 and 15, which does shut you out from sort of the elite talent in the draft a lot of times. Um, I mean, so the question I think then becomes, Chris, what could the Mets have done to be worse the last few years? <laughs> hmm. I mean, I guess the hard tank is you trade David Wright. Um, and they traded R.A. Dickey, obviously. Um, yeah, well, they definitely would have been worse without Wright. That, yeah. that's, that's for sure. You don't sign Granderson, who wasn't great or anything, but was an average major leaguer last year. Um. Right. Well, yeah. You look at you look at what left field was last year, and if right field was also that, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you you're, you I mean you can do it, and yeah, maybe you get you're not getting Carlos Correa out of it. Maybe the last couple of years you pick up. Fourteen. You know, maybe last year you're picking number seven overall, and you get. 
can you friggin' load? MLB.com? <laughs> I didn't memorize last year's draft. I'm sure there's a lot of people on the MLB draft site right now, but I'm just looking for the 2014. Well, there's always baseball references. I thought it was. I thought it was Aaron Nola. It is Aaron Nola. So you get Aaron Nola instead of Michael Conforto. Yes. That's better. Or, you know, your top five, you get Nick Gordon. Um, but you just don't know is the thing. I mean, that's the problem. You just don't know if the top five picks are going to be better than the, you know, is it better to pick seven or 13 in any given year? There's just, it's, there's too many variables in place. I mean, you think generally, yes, it drops off fairly quickly, and it does, but drafting is weird. I don't know if I could sit through. I mean, I feel like those teams were really bad the last few years, but I mean, they weren't, obviously. They weren't the Astros. They weren't the Twins. They weren't, in some cases, uh, the White Sox. Right. I, I kind of feel like, in the long term, of course, you're more likely to get that top talent in the draft the worse you are. But on that year-to-year basis, in terms of being a watchable team... Right, you have to be the Rays, really. Yeah, I mean, it, there's... It, on a day-to-day basis, from April to the end of September, I think there's a significant difference between watching a 75-win team and watching a 60-win team. We only get so many years on this earth, and spending them <laughs> watching 60-win Mets teams will probably take off some of those years. <laughs> Granted, the ones at the end, but still... There is value in just not watching a dog shit baseball team day in and day out. Like, would you really want to be a Phillies fan this year? Well, I would never want to be a Phillies well, fan. But, but, I know, but, I understand. But not... They just <laughs> yeah, signed no, Kevin Correa, it... and it might be an upgrade to their rotation. Right. Yeah, no, it, that, I mean, it's, it's miserable. Um, when you're rolling out Jeff Francoeur and Grady Sizemore in 2015 as starting players and I know they got rid of Sizemore but when you're doing that uh, things are not good I mean they took a rule 5 middle infielder and playing him as their everyday center fielder right that is the thing that is happening I mean look there's always bright spots even for 60 win teams there's stuff to get excited about. If you're like me and you're a pessimist, there's a certain amount of uh, pleasure in the truly execrable baseball, I suppose. But uh, there are other ways to build through, build other than through the draft. You know, they could blow out their IFA signings. They could be aggressive in Cuba. I mean, they haven't done any of those things, obviously. Um, And really even draft... I mean, they've had high draft picks the last four years, five years, six years. They never won in 2009. Last five years. So, you know, they, you still got to hit on those picks. And they have 
to a certain extent. I mean, if Parma's... I can't keep doing soccer updates for, like, three teams every week. I just can't. <laughs> but, but, yes, spiritually, intuitively, if Mike Piazza owns a stake of a Serie B team, yes, Parma will be the second official team of the podcast. But not in a way where I talk about them in any way, at any uh, point in time. Our last email is from David. Dear Jeff and Co., a few quick questions for you this week. Any thoughts as to why Wilmer Flores is hitting home runs but not for average? After posting some nice batting averages in the PCL, I think we may have found the problem. At young ages, I was expecting him to hit closer to 270, 280 than 240. Has he changed his approach, which might explain the home runs? Um, I don't know if he's changed his approach. It, I mean, I made this joke on Twitter where it's just, you know, he looks for a dick high fastball in and then just tries to yank it. And, you know, pitchers will miss dick high and in enough. You can run into 20 home runs in a season when you're as strong as he is and you're sort of as quick inside as he is. The reason why he's hitting 240, if you throw him a ball away, he can't do anything with it because he's so geared down and in. And the other reason he has like a 250 Babbitt, even though he's making a lot of contacts, he's, you know, popping things up to the right side or rolling over on balls away. I uh, just... Is is <laughs> is yank the standard terminology for hitting the, the dick-high fastball? Yes, Chris McShane, it is. <laughs> I just wanted to check. That's really what you're taking out of this? You have any thoughts on Wilmer Flores' approach other than make a dick joke? Well, not really a dick joke, a masturbation joke. <laughs> That's what you got for me. I, I I just noticed the wording. That's that, that, that that's all. I mean, he's hitting. It's, it's funny because he's like, he's good for one. It's one of those weird things where he's good for one for four every night, and he hits a home run every once in a while. Like I swear to God, he goes one for four every night. It's kind of he's like unusually consistent. He also hasn't walked in his last one hundred plate appearances. I'm gonna check, but I'm gonna guess. I guess AJ Przezinski is still in the majors. But he probably has the worst walk rate of any uh, qualified hitter in baseball this year. That's a safe bet. I think that's a safe bet. I'm feeling good about that bet. I'm going to look it up right now. It's got to be close. If, it, if it's not the worst, it's got to be close. Let's see. It is. He's not even. He's fifth, amazingly enough. Salvador Perez, who was the one worry I had there. Yeah, McCullough uh, tweeted during yeah. this recording that Salvador Perez walked. Uh, he's tied with Chris Owings at 2.5%. Um, unsurprisingly, <laughs> two Royals, Omar Infante and Salvador Perez, are ahead of him. And uh, Danny Santana of the Twins. Who the Twins, I think, are finally stopping playing. He has a 25-to-1 strikeout-to-walk ratio. 24-to-1. 24-to-1 strikeout-to-walk ratio. And a 42. Greater runs, greater plus. That's not good. Yeah. I mean, Perez, <laughs> Perez is the only hitter. Well, I guess Brett Lurie, too. The only One of the only hitters in the top 10 to have an, uh, an above average offensive season so far. And that's because Perez has similar power to Flores and is actually like a legitimately has better bat control, I would say. It's a higher Babbitt, but, but I think he hits more line. It's like he's a better hitter. The hit tool there is better. I mean, look, can Flores sneak out 260, 290, 420 out of this season? 
yeah, that's still not great. I don't know. It's such a weird season. I want to see how it plays out. Yeah. But I think there is there is something to his performance so far that is built into the approach that he has right now. Is, a, um... a certain former and possibly future co-host of this podcast took me to task on Twitter for making the joke about Yankee Dick high fastballs and then presented a spray chart where he hit almost nothing to the opposite field. <laughs> like, like everybody else, he's like, no, I mean, yeah, it's like a lot of guys just sort of work opposite field for singles and then pull for power, but not to this extent. Like, I'm sure his, like, Mark Simon heat map is just, like, stupid ridiculous. Right. Number two. Um, Are you going to go more? Well, no, no, since we mentioned Omar Infante, if this whole Royals fan all star game, I, I'm, 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 as you know, I'm team entropy. So I am rooting for Omar Infante to sneak out uh, <laughs> the starting all star second baseman over Jose Altuve, just for the Twitter conflagration, if nothing else. Now I will continue with number two. If we want to compete this year for a pennant, is there any good reason not to promote Mats right now? Would that not make this a better better team? It would make it a better team. He's probably not Super 2 eligible if they called him up today or tomorrow. But they're not going to do it until June 20th, and when they're sure he's not going to be Super 2 eligible. As uh, Anthony DiComo already said, Three, assuming the Mets trade Nice and G, what's a fair return at this point? Could they get decent slash good A-level prospects? No. I'd call that a win if feasible. It's not. Is it safe to assume that Sandy is just waiting for an opportunity along these lines, or does he think that he can get Major League talent in return? Um, he's waiting for any opportunity, and probably not. I just... You know, Nice, there's still some guaranteed money, and he's been a slightly above replacement level starter. G, they're moving to the bullpen for a reason. Um, and any team that wants Dylan G can just wait four months, probably. And not have to give up anything for him, other than money. If there was a legitimate... And they've been trying to trade Dylan G for, what would you say, six months at this point? Yeah. And if there was a trade out there, it probably would have happened. Four, while well, thinking about Nice's once-praised contract, now a genuine burden. I mean, genuine burden is a bit strong. If only because at this point they owe... Let me get the exact numbers. So they owe $9 million next year. Well, they owe another $4 million or so this year. $5 million. Nine million next year, and there's two team options with a five hundred thousand dollar buyout, which really isn't that much. It's just not like I said. There's it's sort of we're in like there's no bad one year deals, and the and the rate for veteran starting pitching is so high that you know just getting a you know back end veteran starter to sort of shore up the back end of your rotation and give you some starting pitching depth wouldn't be much less than that at this point. You know, I guess I guess the joke would be uh, so Nieces do nine million next year on his deal. I mean nine and a half if you want to wrap in the buyout. 
for comparison's sake, let's see how much Aaron Harang is making this year. <laughs> I mean, that's the kind of guy that's uh, $5 million. So there you go. So you're paying $4 million more than Aaron Harang. Look, Aaron Harang's been really fucking good this year. I don't understand it either. <laughs> but last year, you know, with Atlanta, when he was basically like a league average starter, you know, that kind of like veteran depth, um, you know, that's the going rate for it. And apparently Chris McShane's computer is dead for the night. So you're stuck uh, with just me. I didn't like the Aaron Harang talk. Nor should it, to be fair. So we'll knock off the last of David's quick questions. Number five, in 195 plate appearances, Gavin Chikini's line at Binghamton is 331, 385, 483. Last year at the same level in 242 plate appearances, Matt Reynolds hit 355, 420, 422. Chikini is two years younger at the same level. Neither of them hit particularly well any other year. How do we read their numbers going forward, thinking about their futures? Thanks as always. Best, David. So... The biggest difference between Cicchini and Reynolds, besides age, which is important, um, draft pedigree, which is, at this point, probably still important, uh, is strikeout rate. So Cicchini's high batting average is probably more sustainable, because he strikes out at a much lower rate than... Reynolds, and has at previous levels as well. So if you were to pick a guy that you would think would hit 280 in the majors, you know, plus hit tool, 60 grade hit, you'd probably throw that on Chikini before you threw it on Reynolds. Uh, and, you know, these are Other than that, these are two guys where production matters, because they're not big tools guys. You're not going to see a, a, a jump forward in game power. You're not going to see elite middle infield tools defensively. So these are guys that are going to need to hit. Uh, Cicchini historically has had a slightly better walk rate in his professional career, too. So that matters as well, I think. And you know the reason I had Cicchini at... I'm doing this from memory, number 10 on my prospect list this year, and, and Reynolds towards the back end of the top 20 or just outside of it. You know, those things add up quickly, especially when you consider uh, the age and background. And to say Cicchini never hit particularly well, eh, I guess that's fair. I'm not going to quibble with that too much. You know, he had 700 OPS last year. At both A-ball levels, and, you know, he was hurt in Kingsport and Brooklyn. But didn't hit much there either, so this is sort of his first season. But, you know, a guy breaking, you know, a first-round pick breaking out at 21 in double-A, I don't think, throws up as many red flags as, you know, as a, a second-round college guy that's always been a little old for level, you know, breaking out at 23 in double-A. Your mileage may vary. But I think the thing you look for there primarily is sort of the prospect pedigree, if you will, and the uh, superior K rate. 
are sort of the differentiators for Chikini. And look, Chikini might end up more of a second division starter utility infielder type still. But the reason you hold out, the reason that's not, you know, his OFP like it is with, with Reynolds is because of those two things. So those are your emails. Once again, you can email the podcast at podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. And we will wrap things up with your IFK Gothenburg update. Yep, that's right. Another win on the ledger for our Blue and White Angels. Still five points clear at the top of the Ostvenskan Liga. After a last-minute win over Hamarby in Stockholm this past weekend. Very exciting. At least one team I support on the podcast is doing well. I won't I haven't talked about Sheffield Wednesday much lately, and I don't want them to fall by the wayside. They re-signed midfielder Kieran Lee for two more years, which is good. He's when he's when he's fit, he was some injury issues last year. I actually voted him as uh, player of the year in the 2013-2014 season uh, over Leon Palmer, who was the eventual winner. I did have Palmer too, and I think it was a fair choice, but Kieran Lee was my guy. And when he finally got healthy again last year, he was you know, the midfield engine of that team, so getting him back in the fold is big. And they announced their new home shirt, which I've already ordered, and is excellent because it has a collar. Blue collar. It's nice. It's kind of a retro throwback to the early 90s, which is kind of awesome. So that's your IFK Gothenburg update and your Sheffield Wednesday update all in one. I have no more soccer updates, at least until uh, Mike Piazza buys Parma. What I will have uh, next week is another podcast and another edition of Amazing Avenue Audio.